Deborah, have you ever owned anything that you thought was haunted or cursed? Some years ago, I was going to be working on some hats for the TV show, The Untouchable. So not the movie, but there was a TV show in the early 90s. Um, they filmed it in Chicago. And I got to meet the, I was in my early 20s, so like this was very exciting to do. But um, I got to meet the costume designer. His name was Richard Bruno. And he wanted, so I went in, like, met him, and I got to see, you know, all the wardrobe department, and it was really, really exciting. Um, but he wanted me to clean and restore some of these vintage hats that they were going to be using on the show. And they had come from Western Costume Company in California. Uh, it's like one of the biggest costume companies out here for film and television, really well known. So I I bring home this box of, it was probably at four or five different hats, and they all needed various, you know, they needed just a little life breathed into them before they could, were like, we're camera ready. So anyway, I had this box of hats sitting on my floor. At the time, I was um, rooming with my cousin, and, uh, you know, she was excited. Like, I showed, I showed her the hats earlier in the night. So anyway, I was about ready, ready to go to bed. I had the hats in a box on the floor, and I had all these reference books. Like, I know everyone likes to go to Pinterest and Google this and that, but I love books. I love physical books where you can turn the page and... Um, I just feel a little more connected to the history of it. But anyway, I had all these reference books and and so I, I shut the light off. I was not people people always say, Oh, you were probably sleeping and dreaming when this happened. I was like, No, I was absolutely awake. And what I heard after I turned the light off, like just minutes after I, I shut the light off, was the pages of the book turning. I mean, clearly, you know, the sound of like, you can all imagine with the sound of just flipping, you know, through a book, like someone's like leafing through a book. And I, you know, at first, you know, rationally, you want to be like, oh, it's the wind. It's this, there's a noise outside, right? But when you hear that, and it happened again, then you just realize, I'm like, nothing really sounds like that. Like pages of a book turning, there's really nothing that's, that could, you know, come close to that. So I sat straight up, I turned the light back on and just something inside me, I just knew, I knew what it was. It just felt to me like I had brought something home with those hats, something or someone. And and it just seemed to me like intuitively, I'm kind of getting the chills thinking about it. I haven't thought about this in a while. Intuitively, it felt to me like somebody, whoever I brought home, wanted to look through the books. And so that's what they were doing. And just something told me, like, not to be afraid. I wasn't really afraid. It was kind of thrilling and exciting a little scary, but I don't know, whoever it was felt like interested in the same thing that I was interested in. So they didn't feel like an enemy. So, but I remember saying out loud, I was like, I know you're probably interested in in, in these books, but I'm trying to go to sleep now. And I, I would just kind of appreciate it if you could maybe stop doing this right now, you know? And I, I went out into the living room where my cousin was still awake and I told her what happened. And she, you know, it's so hard to believe something like that. So I said, okay, do me a favor. How about you keep the box of hats in your room? And, and I brought the books too. Like I just had it sitting in her room and, you know, we just kind of got a good chuckle out of it. And I didn't see her like the next day it was maybe like day and a half. So I didn't see her for a while. And I just assumed, you know, that was her night was uneventful. But actually, the reality is, she's like, Deborah, <laughs> she's like, damn, you for giving me those. Like, she's like, that wasn't even funny. So what she heard, it sounded to her, to her like the book was just above her head. 
the pages of the book were just above her as if the book was dangling and like just above her as she laid down. But the exact same thing happened, but kind of worse so for her and that it felt like it was just above her head. So she's like, I just put everything in the living room and that was that. So we kind of never talked about that ever again <laughs> after that. God knows the story behind those hats. They came from Western costume, but I don't know from originally, it could be anywhere. It could have been someone's private collection. It's impossible to say. Wow. Yeah. Who knows where those hats came from? That brings us to our topic for this episode, the chaotic life of silent film star Rudolph Valentino and the wake of tragedy and mystery that followed when he died. I'm Deborah, And I'm Rachel. Welcome to Very Vintage. Before doing this discussion and deep dive into Rudolph Valentino, the only reference I knew of him was uh, there's a Womack and Womack song called Baby I'm Scared of You. They talk about um, Houdini and magicians. So I just always thought that Rudolph Valentino was some sort of magician or mentalist. Well, maybe he was sort of a romantic mentalist. Like he seems to have definitely beguiled countless women over the, over time. Do you find him attractive? Like when you were looking at pictures of him as we researched. I mean, it's so funny. I mean, just to look. Yeah. If you don't, if you haven't seen him sort of in action, just to look at him. Not really, but I have to say, after seeing some of his work, you know, you can definitely be sort of vexed by his eyes and his expression. Like he was definitely had a gift for emoting. I didn't find the press photos of him very attractive. He was way too stylized, too much makeup, too perfectly coiffed. But I did notice that he has a great nose, and I know that you love a good nose. I do. I mean, it's his. Per it's perfect, and it's like oh, it's almost like he knew it because he was photographed in profile so often. My big turnaround as far as finding Rudolph Valentino attractive it came when I found a documentary. It was a 1941 retrospective about his life, and it really showed more clips of him in his everyday life, kind of a man about town, and not just him all done up, ready on the movie set. Right. And and then when you see clips of him smiling, I mean, it really makes a difference. I also found photos of Rudolph Valentino and his second wife, Natasha Rambova, who was a costume designer. And they were just so sweet. They're in a train station. They're giggling and kissing and cuddling. And it really just showed him kind of as a regular guy. She's gorgeous. And he looks so happy. I don't know. It was really lovely. It is. No, they were like a really lovely couple together, for sure. You know, all of this makes me curious about my grandmother. She was born in 1919, so she had older sisters who would have been coming of age as Rudolph Valentino was really getting popular. The reason I bring her up is that she was quite expressive about how handsome she finds my boyfriend or found my boyfriend. And I wonder if it had something to do with she thought he was reminiscent of those dark, mysterious Hollywood silent film stars. You know, he's half Italian and half Pacific Islander. So he's definitely got this ambiguous thing about him. So exotic. Like coconut. <laughs> Ugh, the quickest way to ruin a dessert for me is to put coconut flakes on it. I'm going to have to disagree. Well, fine. I guess we'll just have to agree to disagree then. <laughs> Much of our research today is going to be focused on the 1926 book, Valentino As I Knew Him. This book was initially published in October of 1926, so very shortly after Rudolph Valentino passed away. And it was written by George Ullman, who was a close friend and the business manager of Rudolph Valentino. We filled in some additional details and definitely did other research because a book written by someone that close to a person and also that close after someone's death inevitably is going to have some blind spots. 
Born in 1895 with a lot of names, so I'm going to start and I'm going to see if I can finish. Rudolfo Alfonso Raffaello Pierre. I was surprised Pierre. Isn't he Italian? Well, actually, his mother was from France and his father was from Italy. They settled in the south of Italy. There's a lot more names. And George Ullman said in the book that no matter how poor Italians may be in money, even the poorest is rich in adjectives, gestures, and names, which certainly put Rudolfo Alfonso Guglielmi and many other names in there uh, at a at a premium of being quite wealthy with all those names. Rudolf Valentino's father died when he was quite young, and Rudolf struggled to find himself through his adolescence. He kind of bobbed around, failed out of some schools, failed out of careers. He spent some time marauding around Paris, and uh, eventually his family, his mother and uncle, raised money for him to go to America. And Rudolf would often joke saying that their decision to ship me to America uh, was because his uncle said, if he's going to turn out to be a criminal, it's better for him to be far off in America, not in a place where his disgrace can touch us. So, you know, read what you want into that. In 1913, at age 18, Rudolph Valentino got on board of a ship destined for Ellis Island in New York, and he spoke virtually no English. He attempted to learn a few phrases during his journey across the sea. Valentino spent his initial years more or less homeless and oftentimes living in Central Park. Thankfully, while he was in Paris as a younger man, he had learned from some South Americans how to dance the tango. He took his chance as a taxi dancer to make some money, and I wasn't totally sure what that was, but you filled me in. It's basically he was paid to dance with women that didn't have partners. I think it was something like 10 cents a dance. He was able to meet a lot of very wealthy, probably very lonely women and I'm guessing the dance didn't stop on the dance floor. According to the Smithsonian Magazine, Valentino became close with a Chilean heiress who turned out to really be a lot of drama. She was in a failing marriage to a wealthy businessman. And while their divorce proceedings were going on in 1915, Rudolph was dragged into court and even thrown into jail at one point. The legal drama between the couple ultimately spilled over and the wife shot the husband to death. Seeking to get away from it all, Rudolph fled to Los Angeles. Once in Los Angeles, Rudolph Valentino continued his dancing career and began to land small roles in films. He often took roles as villains, and it took some time for his life to turn around and him to really get some traction. During this time, he hastily married an actress named Jean Acker, who reportedly instantly regretted their marriage. In fact, she locked herself in their hotel room on their wedding night, refusing to consummate the marriage. There was a rumor that she may have been a lesbian, but that's neither here or there. Failing to consummate that marriage, she filed for divorce, and they had the marriage annulled. In Ullman's book, he said that Acker and Valentino maintained a friendship despite their failed marriage. By 1921, Rudolph Valentino had landed the role of Julio in The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, a brand new movie. The Julio character was not intended to be the breakout star, but Rudolph played the character so well and excelled so much that they continued to really build up and outshine that character from the other roles in the movie. This was also the first movie to generate over $1 million. Can you imagine back then? That's a lot of money. Valentino got tired of being treated not like the leading man that he felt he was, and he was eventually wooed by the studio Players Lasky. He was given his big break when Edith Maud Hall's wildly popular book, The Sheik, was adapted for the big screen. He was cast as Sheik Ahmed Ben Hassan. The 1919 book, The Sheik, was so popular as a novel that it inspired an entire genre of desert-themed romances in which a reckless, typically white woman would be off in the desert, uh, kind of get out of line and get captured by Arabs or Bedouins. 
and have to find her way out of the situation. These books became so popular that I found an article that said that women were actually running off to the Middle East in hopes that they would get captured by Arabs. It just proves to you that people will do anything for adventure and a little bit of love. I found an NPR article that said Valentino's playful treatment of the character was what really captivated the female audiences and established him as Hollywood's first male sex symbol. However, that's actually not entirely true. There is someone in silent films who preceded Rudolph Valentino. It's actually a Japanese man, but that's a story for another episode and another time. Thankfully, the movie The Sheik softens some of the harder to read and watch scenes. It makes everything between The Sheik and his captive a lot more, um, I guess, consensual. I don't know. You watched the movie. I didn't watch it all the way through. What did you think? He was a very sweet and charming captor. Okay, so major spoiler for the movie. Is it still a spoiler if the movie came out in 1921? It's basically 100 years old at this point. I think it would be a spoiler. Like, I was debating to whether we should mention the ending because I was really, I was surprised to see it. Okay, well, spoiler alert anyway. Close your ears for the next 20 seconds. The final big twist of the movie reveals that the Sheik is actually adopted. So by blood, he's English and Spanish and not Arab after all. Apparently, this was to make the whole romantic relationship between a white person and a brown person more palatable for American audience. So the book and the movie, quite problematic, even, you know, back then. I mean, just think about how telling that is for the time. And to this day, if you go on YouTube, you can find dozens of clips and even entire Rudolph Valentino movies dutifully uploaded by fans. When you go into the comment section, you will see comment after comment of primarily women who are still bewitched by the long-gone Hollywood heartthrobs' handsome looks. He definitely had a magnetism. I mean, like seriously, like I used the word vex earlier, but there's something magical to him. It's hard to explain. I mean, the fact that we're both now currently obsessed where we didn't know too much about him, I think speaks volumes. Right. And now I feel like we've both got a crush on him. <laughs> Definitely. Anytime you found a picture that we hadn't seen or I found a clip uh, that we, we hadn't come across yet, I felt like we texted each other in the middle of the night. We're like giddy little schoolgirls. We'll, we'll get to the point where the hauntings happen. But like to, to me, in a way, it's, it's a little it makes me optimistic that we can still see him again. Well, we'll get to the hauntings. <laughs> so what happened next? Even though the movie The Sheik was a huge success, Rudolph Valentino caught a lot of backlash for his feminine ways. All the makeup, all the jewels. Uh, many critics and writers were worried that this European, this dashing European, was feminizing the American man. And this was something that really bothered Rudolph Valentino. He took it quite personally, and it plagued him as far back in his dancing days in New York that people thought he was homosexual. And we'll get to more on that shortly. As Rudolph Valentino's star was continuing to rise, he was enjoying his fame and fortune. And in 1922, he married again the costume designer, Natasha Rombova. The two had met years earlier when she assisted him with costumes, and they bonded over their mutual draw to the dance floor. It was during this time that Valentino found himself on a shopping trip in San Francisco, and he saw a ring that he decided would be perfect for an upcoming role he had in a movie called The Young Raja. The shopkeeper told him that the ring was not for sale and, in fact, that the ring was cursed. But Rudolph Valentino, with his dreamy eyes and his perfect nose, convinced the shopkeeper to sell him the ring anyway. Rudolph Valentino wore the ring all through the filming of the movie The Young Raja, and interestingly enough, 
This movie was his first major box office flop. He put the ring away and went about his life once the role was over. But unfortunately, his luck continued to change and not in the right direction. His next few films had unpredictable box office receptions, and he was getting into disputes over contracts with various studios and fighting with the press on and on about his masculinity. At this point, he was deeply in debt. To make matters worse, his marriage with Natasha Rombova was falling apart, and it ended in divorce in 1925. What I found was that kind of publicly they said it was with regards to that they couldn't decide about kids or not. In George Ullman's book, he talks a lot about the debt that they were in, but it was also rumored that they never had a legitimate marriage, that their marriage was, in fact, what was called a lavender marriage. And this was not a term I'm familiar with. So I looked it up. And in modern times, it's not a pleasant term, but it's referred to as having a beard. So when one or both parties of the marriage are actually gay and they try to appear straight by marrying someone of the opposite gender. So in essence, a lavender marriage is a phony marriage to conceal someone's homosexuality. Unclear on if it was Rudolph that was gay, Natasha that was gay, or both of them. Struggling with his image and bogged down with debt, Rudolph Valentino had almost no choice but to accept when an offer to do a sequel to The Sheik came his way. The movie was very cleverly called The Son of the Sheik. During this time, he was embroiled in a battle with an anonymous editorialist from the Chicago Tribune. There had been rumors about his sexuality going back all the way to those dancer days in New York, and they had gotten louder and louder as his fame continued to grow. One particular article really set Rudolph Valentino off. It was run by the Chicago Tribune in July of 1926, and it was under the title Pink Powder Puffs. An enraged Valentino couldn't believe that this anonymous article blamed him for the installation of a face powder dispenser in a men's restroom in a new facility on the north side of Chicago. I wish I knew which which restaurant that I was. I know. Where is this powder dispenser? <laughs> I did find the original text of the column, and I've got to admit, it's pretty rough. Uh, they start out talking about um, him kind of using some gay slurs, and then they use some Italian slurs. And they even say that maybe somebody should have drowned him when he was still in Italy. Not pleasant. Valentino seethed at the editorial's insinuations and ridicule. Since The Son of the Sheik was about to open, the film's press agent suggested that maybe Valentino kind of fight back a little with a challenge of his own. So Valentino sent a proclamation through the Chicago Herald Examiner, which was the biggest news competitor to the Chicago Tribune. And he said that, quote, to the man who wrote the editorial headed pink powder puffs in Sunday's Tribune, I call you to a personal test. He went on to say that an actual duel is illegal. You know, you can't actually have a duel. However, that boxing was in fact legal in the state of Illinois, and he challenged that anonymous author to get in the boxing ring with him. All of this publicity was great for the upcoming movie, but it was really weighing on Valentino's mental state. The Tribune editorial writer never did come forward, but the actor traveled to New York and arranged to have boxing lessons from his friend Jack Dempsey, who was a heavyweight champion. Valentino was actually quite fit, so in a quest to help his friend, Dempsey got in touch with a sports writer, Frank Buck O'Neill, and reportedly told him, listen, O'Neill, Valentino's no sissy. Believe me, he packs a pretty mean punch. Dempsey hoped that this would make Valentino feel better and make the press lay off of him. Unfortunately, O'Neill replied by telling Dempsey to cut the crap, I don't buy it, and neither does anyone else. O'Neill then followed up by volunteering to be a proxy for the anonymous writer and to 
do the boxing match himself against Rudolph Valentino. And they met on the roof of a New York hotel surrounded by journalists and photographers. Because Valentino was a working actor, they agreed on some rules. First of all, no punches to the face. However, in a panic, Buck O'Neill opened up the fight by punching Rudolph Valentino right in the face. In a panic? Or don't you think he might have done that on purpose? Ugh, I don't know. What's that quote? Everyone's got a plan until they get hit in the face? It's really hard to tell. I don't know. I think it's unfair. Deborah, have you ever been punched in the face? <laughs> I wasn't punched in the face, but I had a, a Burger King Coca-Cola poured over my head, uh, which started a fight. Um, yeah, I was 15 years old. I was with my best friend, Linda. We were at Burger King, minding our own business. I should mention I had very, we both had pretty weird hair at the time. It was the 80s. It was a crazy time. So we looked like, you know, like little punk kids, like little rebels, but we actually were good kids. You know, we we weren't doing anything but just having a normal conversation. There are these women sitting in the Burger King, grown women, so they were probably like 30, right? We're like 15 and they're 30 and they were with a little girl. They just started yelling at us from across the Burger King as if we were like had provoked them, but we didn't. We were absolutely just, you know, having our own conversation. And I remember at one point saying, listen, we're not bothering you. What's the problem? Um, this kind of went on for a little while. And as they got up to go leave, the one woman just took the rest of her drink and just poured it on my hair, my like eight inch aqua netted hair. And I just kind of lost it. I just kind of <laughs> went at her. I remember sort of ramming her like a bowl almost. And um, we ended up sort of in the, the front of the Burger King. I remember she grabbed my hair like I don't know if you've ever had your hair pulled, but it's it's kind of immobilizing. I remember just like, I remember just sort of gritting my teeth going, let go of my hair. And so I remember trying to get some, she had my hair. That was like the best she could do. But I remember like trying to get some kidney punches in. <laughs> like I was punching her. You know what I mean? I would never start a fight. But if someone's going to provoke me unfairly, then guess what? I'm going to finish. It. I'm going to take care of it. You know, I mean, it was just a, like really ugly scene. And like when it was all done, I remember like the, the manager of the Burger King like stood above us, like in like towards the entrance of the place. And it's like nobody could do anything. No one knew what to do. It was it was very bizarre. But I remember just like leaving and like walking through the alleys with my friend. And I was just like so devastated. Like I remember just like crying most of the way home going like, what's wrong with people? She couldn't understand that we look different. Like we that's all it was. Like we had big hair and like had combat boots or whatever. But like we were just normal teenagers, you know, underneath the, exp you know, the self-expression. So I remember thinking like how sad for that. Presumably the daughter, she was maybe like eight years old, like had to see that, had to see her mom provoke a fight with people that were just enjoying their their lives. I, I don't know. It was yeah, it was upsetting. But that was really my only my only true fight, I would say. Like I've somehow grown to this advanced age without ever having to get into another fight again. Okay. So back to the fight. Buck O'Neill and Rudolph Valentino are up on the roof. They agreed not to actually hurt one another, but when that fight opened up, O'Neill popped Valentino right on the chin with a left hook, but the actor responded by dropping his much larger opponent with a left of his own. Somewhat stunned by his own actions, Valentino helped Buck O'Neill back onto his feet. O'Neill then concluded by telling a reporter, next time Jack Dempsey tries to tell me something, I'll believe him. That boy, Rudolph Valentino, has got a punch like a mule's kick. And that seemed like it was the end of that. Shortly thereafter, the film The Son of the Sheik opened. And finally, with the film being a hit, the press had something else to focus on with regards to Rudolph Valentino, rather than his pink powder puffs and his masculinity. In the weeks following, Rudolph Valentino began the press tour for The Son of the Sheik, 
And with the failure of the young Raja long behind him, he decided to take out that tiger's eye ring again. As he was traveling promoting the son of the sheik, Rudolf Valentino suddenly collapsed at the Ambassador Hotel in New York and was quickly taken to the hospital for emergency surgery. And this is where things get really confusing. According to the Smithsonian Magazine, Rudolf Valentino had surgery for a ruptured appendix, and his doctors were hopeful that he would recover. But then he developed an issue in his lung and was in severe pain. So in your research, you said that it was appendicitis. The way I understood it was that he sort of presented with the symptoms of appendicitis, but it was actually an ulcer, a ruptured ulcer that developed peritonitis and an infection, you know, ensued and because they didn't have antibiotic at the time. But it's, I mean, it's true. I'm, I'm going to agree with you. I, there's definitely this conflicting story. So. Right. I feel like I saw a lot of conflicting things. I know. I have too. Either way, he was struggling medically, and he was rushed to the hospital where he was operated on at 6 o'clock in the evening. According to Ullman in his book, Valentino, As I Knew Him, at 7 o'clock, the operation was over. By 10.30, he came out from under the influence of the ether. Ullman said in his book, I want to call attention to the entire world. The first statement Valentino made when he was conscious was, did I behave like a pink powder puff or like a man? Oh, boy. It just goes to show how troubled Rudolph was by all the harassment he received from the press, not just about his sexuality, but they were also so awful to him with Italian slurs and just stuff about his upbringing. Rudolph Valentino did eventually slip into a coma on August 23rd and died just hours later. The final words from his friend George Ullman's book about his life were, Hurriedly, I summoned an Italian priest, thinking that possibly Rudy might wish to say something in his native tongue to a confessor. But when he arrived... Rudy was too far gone to answer and only muttered one Italian word, which no one could understand. So Rudolph Valentino died gallantly as he had lived. The doctors knew for some time that he was going to die, but they didn't tell anyone. They didn't tell him. Watching an interview with Valentino's brother, he added that the doctor who performed the surgery was actually really nervous, like got a case of the nerves knowing that here he is working on Rudolph Valentino and what if something should go wrong. So in other words, like he like he didn't ha- keep his cool. Yeah, that kind of reminds me about Joan Rivers when she died. It was alleged that the surgeon who worked on her wasn't focused and instead was taking selfies instead of doing his job. That's messy. Valentino's seemingly sudden death in New York had women flooding the street. There were even reports that people had committed suicide. The funeral turned into a mild riot with over 100,000 people pouring into the streets, and police struggled to corral the crowds. However, no one took Rudolph Valentino's death harder than Polish actress Pola Negri. And while we couldn't quite confirm if they were ever engaged, it's pretty clear, based on reports of the time and on George Ullman's book, that the two were at least lovers. It was a bit confusing because at the time of his death, they were also linked romantically to other people. And she marries this other fellow like within the same year that Rudy died. So I doubt she was that grief stricken. I love that you just called him Rudy. It's just much easier to say. No, he called. I think he thought of himself as Rudy. (laughs) Okay, well, I think you may have a little bit of a crush on him. I think, no, I do think he considered himself Rudy. Like, he went by that in his own brain. Regardless of their relationship status, Pola fainted over his coffin, and upon being revived, she announced that she was to be his third wife, and now she was going to be his widow. She quickly claimed that role of widow, and for the funeral, she sent a massive display of red roses and white blooms that spelled out her own name, Pola. I'm just, like, rolling my eye. You can't see me right now, but I'm rolling my eyes. Grief makes people do weird stuff. Or is it, or like just self-promotion? 
I don't know about that. I think of it like she was, you know, like an upcoming star or or I shouldn't say upcoming. She probably had a bit of success, but she certainly thought she could get a little more success if she was Valentino's, you know, grieving widow. Rudolph Valentino's body traveled back to the West Coast on a funeral train, and that's when stuff starts to get really weird. The actor still had that tiger's eye ring in his possession. You know, I'm not sure if I saw a picture of it or just a picture of a similar ring. Why don't you describe what you found? I did. Well, it's funny because like upon looking a little closer, I saw now I've seen two different pictures. They're similar but different. So it's a tiger's eye, which means like the stone is, you know, sort of a brown marbly stone. But I've seen it in two different settings. I've seen it in a I and I saw it written that it's in a silver, like a real simple, almost like a filigree silver setting. But I've more recently found it in, in a gold setting. So I don't know which one to believe. So regardless of how we feel about Pola Negri and how valid her claims of being Rudolph Valentino's widow may be, she was offered her choice of mementos of her lover, and so she selected the ring that was his favorite. She began to wear the ring to remind her of her late lover, but quickly became gravely ill. She then remembered that the ring might actually be cursed. She got scared, took it off, put it away, and recovered almost as quickly as she had gotten sick. Years later, in 1934, Polo Negri took a new lover named Russ Colombo. Russ was known as the Radio Valentino or the Valentino with the voice because people said that Russ Colombo and Rudolph Valentino had a really similar physical appearance. What do you think? Do you think he looks like him? Because I, I was looking at pictures of him. What are your, what are your thoughts? Oh, I don't know. They all sort of look the same to me. I don't know if people realize, but photos at that time were really heavily altered. So there was no such thing as Photoshop, but there was still a lot of post-production going on on pictures, even as far back as the 1890s, 1920s and beyond. I know what you mean. I mean, she thought he was the spitting image. I don't agree with that. I mean, there was a resemblance, but not not the spitting image. So there's also a debate about Rudolph Valentino because he died right before sound became part of films. You know, would Rudolph Valentino have been able to make it in the talkies because apparently he had an Italian accent? And some people say his accent was too thick, while other people who knew him said that his baritone would have only helped him become even more successful. And I know you found some videos of him singing. What did you think about his voice? I mean, it sounded lovely, but it's it's hard to tell between someone's singing voice and their speaking voice. But according to Gloria Swanson, who worked with him, she said that he had just a slight accent. You know, she thought that he probably could do well. At any rate, Russ Colombo, Radio's Valentino, the Valentino with the voice, ended up with the ring because Pola Negri eventually gave it to him because he reminded her so much of her late lover. She told him that the ring was from one Valentino to another. Shortly after Russ received the gift, he was dead. Some say it was the result of a heated argument. Others say it was a careless accident. On Sunday, September 2nd, 1934, Columbo was shot under strained circumstances by his friend, Lansing Brown. Columbo was at Lansing Brown's house, and here's a Brown's own account of what happened. I was absentmindedly fooling around with one of my guns. It was a dueling design and works with a cap and trigger. I was pulling back the trigger and clicking it time after time. I had a match in my hand, and when I clicked, apparently the match got caught between the hammer and the firing pin of the gun. There was an explosion, and Russ slid to the side of his chair. After the shooting accident, doctors frantically tried to save Russ Colombo, but the bullet had struck him in his brain, and he died. The ring was then passed to Russ Colombo's friend, a guy named Joe Casino. Joe initially locked the ring in a glass case to display it. After several years, he took out the ring and began to wear it. Bad idea, because within weeks, Joe Casino was driving in his car and was struck by a truck 
and died. The body count is growing. Joe Cassina was actually a friend of Rudolph Valentino's. So he would have known about the curse. But I mean, like, it's, you know, it's fun, it's whether he believed it or not. But yeah, he definitely knew about it. From there, Joe's brother, Del Casino, ended up with the ring. Del didn't believe in the curse and wore the ring many times without incident. And he also allowed others to wear it. And there were no problems. Del wrote off any kind of curse as just a coincidence, but he kept the ring in a safe in his home when he wasn't proudly wearing it on his own finger or had the ring out on loan. This was until one night when Del was at home and his security alarm went off. His home was being robbed, so he called the police. Officers arrived and the burglar had been unable to escape in time. After arriving on the scene and realizing the intruder was still in the house, police fired a warning shot and inadvertently killed a man named James Willis. But can I ask you, why inadvertently? Like, he clearly was robbing the house. Why was it an accident that they shot him? Well, they wanted to capture the burglar alive. And, you know, still, though, why shoot into a place if you know he's there and you run the risk of killing him? You got to ask the LAPD that one. When they recovered the body of James Willis, they found in his pocket Rudolph Valentino's tiger's eye ring. Yet again, Dell wrote this off as another coincidence and placed the ring right back in the safe where it had been. Eventually, Dell was contacted by a 21-year-old named Jack Dunn. Jack was a figure skater who was getting into acting, and he had an opportunity to play Valentino in an upcoming film about Rudolph Valentino's life. Dell kindly lent Dunn some of Rudolph's clothing, including the famous Tiger's Eye Ring. However, before Jack Dunn ever got a chance to play Rudolph Valentino on the big screen, he would be dead. Shortly after receiving the ring, Dunn had been on a hunting trip and caught a rare blood disease from handling dead rabbits. Freaked out by the untimely death of Jack Dunn, Dell finally locked the ring away in a box where it remained until his death, which was, surprisingly, of natural causes. That's encouraging. At this point, many of Dell's possessions were put in a bank vault in Los Angeles. However, the ring was so cursed that the curse extended to the bank. There were several robberies, one of which many robbers were killed by police in the chase after the robbery. The bank was set on fire at some point, and the bank almost went out of business when all the cashiers went on strike. Who knew that a ring could be so cursed that it could curse an entire building? From there, the ring was lost. Some say it's still at a bank somewhere. Some say a barber has it in New York. I mean, there are theories all over the place about where this ring could be. Well, you said you cracked the code. You know the whereabouts of it. You know, I think I did find it. I went really hard. I went, I sleuthed very, very much for this episode. And I think I did find the ring. However, uh, I'm going to save my results of my sleuthing for our next episode. <laughs> A little cliffhanger. Okay, because this is very vintage and we want to leave you with some practical tips. Deborah, if you acquired something and you thought it was cursed or haunted, what would you do? Well, it would depend on what it was. If it was something that I could maybe put in salt water to purify it, I would, you know, like maybe certain jewelry maybe. But if it was a garment, I'd probably just sage the hell out of it. You know, like put hang it in the shower and just burn some sage, you know, over it. And then maybe ask ask the spirit nicely to leave. Well, that's reasonable. I'll keep that in mind if I ever need it. Join us next time on Very Vintage. We're going to finish the story of Rudolph Valentino's life or rather his afterlife, and I'll also reveal my theory on where I think Rudolph Valentino's cursed tiger's eye ring might be. We're brand new, so if you have feedback for us or a topic to suggest that you'd like to hear us cover, you can reach out to us on our website, verryvintagepodcast.com, 
If you like what we're doing, please tell your friends. You can share a link to our podcast if you are in a vintage Facebook group or a subreddit that is focused on vintage fashion, vintage history. You can also leave us a five-star review. Deborah, when you're not on the podcast, where can we find you? You can find me at Millinery ETC, both my website and Facebook, and I'm Deborah Shirley 1111 on Instagram. And you can find me, Rachel, replying to your comments and DMs on our Instagram at Very Vintage Podcast. You can listen to previous episodes of Very Vintage on our website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, or wherever else you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening. 